Welcome to the show, everybody. I thought I'd start out a little bit differently. I'm feeling a little experimental, and I'm wondering if once in a while it might be fun just to share some of the ideas that I got kicking around in my old noggin. A lot of times I save them, and I'm like, ooh, maybe there will be an opportunity during an interview, and I can interject this thing and bounce this idea that I've been having off of a uh, off of an academic but uh, why not share some with you guys when I have an abundance of them like I have lately and I've also been um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about inspiration I'm inspired to talk about this because I've been bumping into people stand up at stand up science and whatnot that listen to the podcast and they'll know things about me that I share in the intros, like I've been doing a bunch of yoga lately or something like that. And uh, in my mind, I'm like, one, this podcast doesn't have the most amount of listeners, so it's already already like quite a treat when listeners uh, do come out and I meet people. I'm always thrilled that people are into this stuff because, my goodness, I honestly believe um, this, this stuff is just so incredibly important. The, the research that my guests have to share, granted, it's the thing that I'm into and we all kind of think that our things are just the most important things in the world. So, uh, I guess I'm as susceptible to that as anybody, but, uh, but a lot of this stuff hasn't just, um, you know, it's not just fun facts. It's, a, I see like a lot of science stuff out there. It's just like, a fun headline, and I'm not. There's nothing wrong with that. I love a good uh, fun fact, but I I think some of these some of these concepts that we learn during this show can be applied to so many different facets of life. Sometimes it's very detailed uh, and, and specific, and other times it can be applied in a more holistic way. Like I've been rock climbing a lot lately and there's there's things about it you're you're kind of sometimes doing the same route over and over again trying to uh complete this this project there's uh, there's pieces of it you're getting hung up on and there's this move you can't figure out and it's it's this puzzle and and sometimes it's you're working on the same route for weeks at a time and you're making a little bit of progress you get one hold further and you like learn a new technique with each move and and then but as you're doing the same move over and over again you you kind of learn efficiencies within each little move and uh and it and it kind of can um uh, you know, like we make sports analogies for all sorts of things. A lot of times there's all of these associative things that we can um, use metaphors to understand, to use the external world to understand our internal world and vice versa. And and uh, so, you know, thinking about how um, I'll be at the gym and thinking about how the energy uh, spent on each hold, there's you know, you can go faster and then you're not having to hang on for as long. Um, and so you, you'll, you'll save energy that way. But then if your form gets sloppy, then you're burning energy by not holding in the same kind of efficient way. If you, if you use too much haste, you'll make a mistake and you'll either fall or, or waste a bunch of energy making up for that mistake. And so there's like the, you know, these kind of broad, 
things that, that, that can be applied to many different facets of our daily life. And then there's like a specific move, like a heel hook or something like that, um, or you're hooking your heel on a hold to pull yourself. That, that is very specific to, to rock climbing. And so, so I hope that when you're listening to this podcast, you're kind of thinking about things in that same sort of way, whether we're talking about, you know, insects or um, relationship uh, studies or what have you, a lot of this stuff can apply to so many kind of underlying uh, workings of of life and the and the same kind of um, mathematics can apply to many many domains. So it's often more than just the the what might seem like very specific subject matter um, that comes up. So, uh, so that's all. I didn't even plan on, on saying that, but I, I was like, I was thinking about how I was like, geez, I didn't even realize people listened to these intros. Cause sometimes, you know, I'm plugging dates and doing the stuff that is, makes me a little uncomfortable. It's a little self-serving and whatnot. I, you know, it's all stuff that I'm excited about and I believe in, and I want you guys to get into as well. Um, but I, I do get self-conscious about it and I don't want to, uh, you know, from the podcast, I tend to second guess myself a lot. So that's one of the ways in which I second guess myself. And I was thinking that, um, that, well, you can always just skip the intro and skip ahead all you want. And if you aren't into hearing the, the things that have been going on in my life, and this is just a bonus for, uh, for those that want to hear, um, some of the other things that I've been thinking about. So, one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time, man, my my, I've been incredibly inspired lately, and I've been thinking about inspiration in particular, and the things that inspire me. And I was thinking, man, I should be sharing this more with. I've been listening to Aesop Rock. Uh, he's this rapper who is, to me, just the greatest rapper in the whole wide world. He is just an incredible, his lyrics are, it's like I I, I didn't really get poetry, um, I don't think, until, until Aesop Rock. I'm not a big rap guy either, I, I, uh, and I don't pretend to know much about rap. I'm sure there's a, a zillion fantastic artists out there that are fantastic. I don't know much about music generally. I was not super into it uh, growing up. My parents didn't play music and stuff around the house, and so I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't pretend to be some aficionado. And rap is is not my favorite genre in the world, not my least favorite either. That would probably be country music. Um, but I I'm uh, I listen to a lot of rock and I guess alternative music generally. But um, man, this this dude, and, and I was like, I should just share. I want I want to live in a world where where this kind of stuff is encouraged. This is it's it's like the smartest, most sophisticated rap that I have ever heard, and it's and it's it's just been inspiring for me to listen to because he he has all these fantastic metaphors for things his you got to listen to his stuff like 20 times over I, I i obsessively listen to his like one album of his i'll listen to it like when i'm driving around for just a month straight that's all i'll listen to is one album because there's so many intricacies and 
and things that he's saying and he has this insane vocabulary he has i forget what the there's some some study someone studied like took the the first however many thousand words of all these different artists and then graded them on like a lyrical diversity put them in an algorithm to see like how how often words were repeated to kind of establish who who has the most uh diversity in their vocabulary and Aesop Rock is like so far beyond anybody else out there and and like greater than the works of Shakespeare and all this other stuff he's uh um insane and so you know I'm always wanting people to like spread the um, you know, tell people about stand up science and tell all your friends about this podcast and that sort of thing. So I should be doing the same and sharing the things that I love. Um, if you're not a big rap person, a good thing to maybe check out would be he has a with, I guess, folk singer, maybe you'd call her Kimia Dawson. They have a they did an album together called The Uncluded and it's fantastic it's like indie folk rap and it's so different than what you would expect from rap or any music generally it's very it's very um it's a lot of very self-aware and very mindful and about like it's very emotional i would say and it's just been inspiring me so much because he the way in which he can talk about something like your average sitting down for dinner when you were a kid with your family and takes that and and uses all of these like metaphors using greek mythology or whatever to really exaggerate these nuances of life and it it's it's been having me think a lot cuz i'm i fancy myself a pretty decent storyteller and i really enjoy storytelling and and he is such a good storyteller. He has so many other, he has songs about everything, uh, but weird stuff. You wouldn't expect, like going to therapy and then the cat that his therapist recommended he get. I would say that his album, The Impossible Kid, would be the good place to start. He's had some other collabor- collaborative albums that I, I don't get into right away. And it took me a while to appreciate, but I, I have. I just like his music so much. But it's one of those things where you have to listen to it. it it's it's interesting to me how music, you you know, you hear the music first, and, and especially if you're not used to it, you're not sure what to think of it, or you maybe you don't like it at first, and then you get used to it, maybe you start liking it more. Or when you get too used to it, you're bored with it or whatever, and then it drives you crazy or that sort of thing. But... Then after a while, you start hearing the nuances. You can pay attention to the lyrics more. And his stuff is one I have to go on like Rap Genius if I really want to understand what he's saying in all the different songs. But it's it's I get these moments of inspiration where I've heard a song like 20 times before and then I hear a lyric that I'd never heard before or understand the context of it in a new and different way. Sometimes he's calling back to other albums and stuff. And it just strikes me as it's just like, uh, you know, when something just like hits you, it like um, knocks the wind out of you almost. And I get teary eyed and it's just like really appreciating the beauty of it. And it's just so inspiring. And it's had me 
thinking about inspiration and what inspiration is in my relationship with inspiration and because it's something that that I I when when you're I mean I think most of us always would appreciate uh, what in- inspiration we do have and could use a little more inspiration in our life but um, you know I, I harvest my my noggin for money and I have to figure out how to how to keep the idea factory going in my brain and how to capture ideas and how to how to seed ideas so I was thinking about that in my relationship with inspiration and how it's been somewhat dysfunctional and I think that's that's part of like the the bipolar in me is I I attach when I was talking a couple of weeks ago when I shared um, that I that I quit drinking and how kind of everything's sort of a drug in its own way and how we need to think about our different relationships with different kind of stimulus in general and and different um, all different things in life but I was thinking about my relationship with inspiration and how I, I like get inspired I get some big idea and then I just like I obsess over I, I obsess over so many things it, like I'm obsessing over Aesop right now which by the way the uh, one interesting thing I was learning was in the the great courses, uh, the personality class that I'm currently taking, they're talking about how people that are lower in in agreeability, they like less things, but they, but when they do like something, they get way into it, and I thought that was so fascinating, and so it's it's like I have the same amount of. And I'm a little low in agreeability. I've been a little more agreeable lately, maybe. But it's almost, it's almost as if we all have the same amount of agreeability or happiness or whatever in us, and it's just we um, or inspiration, and, and we just find some people use very specific times where they attach to it, and some people just a little more broadly, because they're certainly very agreeable people that doesn't mean they agree with everything I've, I've done stand up in front of very agreeable people who uh hate what i have to say um and think what i'm saying is like controversial or inappropriate or or you know outside of the social norms or something like that um and so i was like well maybe what does it even mean to be not agreeable if 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 then i'm really into specific things maybe i'm just maybe i maybe i just have more specific tastes that's that i mean maybe i'm just an asshole too that could be uh but <laughs> it's not a fun way to reframe being an asshole is is just saying well you know i do like things i just have this uh, you know i i just have this very specific kind of nuanced uh, taste in things. That's all, which is a really sounds like an asshole describing yourself like that. So anyway, I was thinking about that and I was thinking about my relationship with inspiration and how I just like grab onto something and I just indulge. I'm such a binger with everything in life. Like I won't watch TV for months and then I'll just 
get lost in television for like, I'll just start binge watching something and there goes like a week, just gone. All I did that week was watch TV. And I, I don't, and I've been trying to figure out how to find more balance in things. And I'm, I'm the same way with inspiration where I just like milk every little bit of inspiration from any little bit of an idea that I have or whatever. And, and then afterwards I crash and I like go through this withdrawal and I, I don't have any motivation. And I feel like I'm never going to be inspired again. So, uh, so yeah, what is the, what are the kind of regulatory mechanisms, um, that are going on there? What is inspiration exactly? How, what is the, it's the brain assigning value to something that maybe you want to emulate, maybe, or maybe it's just like a pure, um, appreciation standpoint, you know, you get, uh, you get inspired by your own thoughts. That's something that would have a clearer utility when you get expired, inspired by something that, that you can actually put into action yourself. But inspiration, um, is also, you get inspired just sitting around watching TV. Sometimes you get inspired by things. So been thinking about inspiration a lot. It's inspired me to see if, uh, this is just an experiment. See if, if, you guys like this, maybe putting some extra thoughts and ideas at the start of the show. Um, cause oftentimes by the time I, by now that I'm so far ahead with these episodes, by the time I'm releasing one of these, it's coming from wherever I was at three or four months ago. And I am, uh, I change, um, really, really quickly. Some people would call that in being unstable, but uh, I, I call it flexibility. That's how I reframe it. And so I don't know, would that be fun? The other thing along those lines is, do I have some sort of here we are forum set up so people can comment on episodes and I could comment on them and I could tell you maybe some upcoming guests that I'm getting lined up so so you guys could uh, get involved and and look up their profile and and their work or whatever and ask questions of your own, which I could ask during the episodes. Sounds like a wonderful, fantastic idea in theory. However, I have so much on my plate right now. I'm like, do I add that? I mean, is it something that I can just have someone on the team set up a forum and I can check in and and pipe in when when I have the time to do that I like the idea because I've been meeting so many of the people at stand up science and it's just oh my god it's just the crowd of people that I want to be around and you guys you listeners are the uh, just the type of people not to be a snob or whatever but I I just want to be around people that want to have conversations like this. And I, I go on Facebook and promote stand-up science and someone's like, oh, is it about global warming? Because that's the joke. Like, I, I'm sorry. I want to, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, roll my eyes. Is it is it condescending for me to think you're a complete moron when you, when you like... Uh, comment something like that and I don't want anything to do with that person 
because they're just so far behind. I don't, I don't have time for them and I want to like move forward with better ideas. Does that make me a dick that I'm not like, oh, well here, let me explain how reality works for you and walk you through it as they're going la, 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 la in their ears and yelling at me. I don't know. There's only so much time in life and, and some people are, aren't necessarily worth your energy and I find you guys so worth my energy and I just think that it could be something that even though it you know I've I've been finding a lot that it's not just about like time in minutes that you're using or spending throughout the day it's it's in uh, are those minutes or hours are they draining or are they nourishing and are they adding um to your life and so that's something that i could see adding i could also see there being all of these and i i feel like maybe i gotta check it more often i I do have an addictive personality i don't know so those are all thoughts that i've been thinking about why don't you why don't some of you guys write me and let me know go go to the here we are podcast.com website fill out the forum. I read 100% of them and I don't write back because I don't want people having my personal email and everything. That's another reason why I want to have the forum because then I can then I can have um, you know, just a regular um conversation in an open forum space um and and not have things, you know, worrying about putting out my personal info or anything like that to people. So those are some thoughts that I've had and some some things that I've been into lately that I wanted to share with you guys. And uh, yeah, so uh, enjoy today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast today. Get this, guys. I'm going to try uh, my first try. We're going to see if I can get it all in there. Assistant Professor of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology and of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. Zoe Donaldson is joining me today. Nailed it on my first try. I'm so not, impressed. Not bad. That was a, quite a That's mouthful. That's better than I can that do was, it. <laughs> really? <laughs> um, well, I'm very proud of myself. We're already off to such a good start. Usually it would take me about 10 times to get that right for some reason or another but i'm excited to talk to you for a few reasons one you're doing stand-up science with me coming up that's exciting it's going to be a lot of fun and two a few different reasons but one you work with and i don't think that we've ever talked i was thinking back on this i'm like this is shocking that we've never talked about this subject on the here we are podcast over 200 episodes now and we have yet to talk about prairie bulls the famous prairie bulls all sorts of evolutionary biology books and whatnot you you can barely read one without hearing about the famous mating behavior of the prairie bulls and that's exactly what you study i got to see a little you gave me a little tour of the of the colonies that you got down there show me some of the some of the fun experiments that you're doing why don't you tell the listeners uh what you got going on and what you do Yeah, so I don't think most people spend much time thinking about the social lives of rodents, 
but I do. And that's because it turns out that as humans, we're really weird. As far as mammals are concerned, we fall into three to five percent of species that are capable of forming these long-term mating bonds. And I'm interested in understanding the neurobiology of these bonds in a way that we can't feasibly approach them in humans. And so I needed a proxy species, basically, another species that forms these long-term bonds. Um, and so in my lab, we study prairie voles because they're monogamous and they essentially will mate for life. They'll meet, they'll mate, they'll share a burrow. Both the mom and the dad will take care of the offspring and they'll basically run off any other potential suitors, kind of like a jealousy-like or a mate-guarding behavior. Hmm. Fun. And then there's a second species of prairie voles that is promiscuous instead, right? Yeah, so we have, we have like a cousin species. They're called meadow voles. Um, and so the easy way to remember, and this is generationally, I know I'm, I'm sort of aging myself here, but the prairie voles are like little house on the prairie, right? So you've got mom and you've got dad and they're sharing a house in the middle of the prairie, taking care of the kid, the kids together. Then you have the meadow voles. And I don't know if there's any sort of literature equivalent, um, but those guys are of the mate and leave variety. So they'll mate and then the mom will go off and raise the offspring on her own. Hmm. And so a lot of a lot of your work is looking into why those differences occur because I, I just got a little tour and you look at you look at these two species and they from my eyes look identical you're not alone um so we actually have to use genotyping to tell the species apart because they look so similar and when people collect them from the field they have to actually look at the dna to be able to tell the difference sometimes hmm. um but when you think about their behavior it's strikingly different right why does why does having sex lead to this long-term relationship in one of those species but not in the other what's going on in their brains that's different and that's that's one of the things that we study in my lab hmm. Bet MGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 money line wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA, and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. My limited knowledge, but I, often when I hear about prairie bulls, I also if I'm remembering correctly, hear the word progesterone thrown around. A Probably bit. oxytocin. Oxytocin, is yeah. that it? Yeah. Oxytocin is the famous hormone from voles. Oh, okay. I had a P1 in my mind. So there's progesterone and prolactin, neither of which have been extensively studied in the voles. Okay. And then we have oxytocin and vasopressin, which are two oh, small Oh, vasopressin okay, is yeah. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Not a P at all, a V. A V, um, there you go. Va right. uh, yeah, vasopressin. That's the yeah. one that I was thinking yeah. of. So yeah, so both oxytocin and vasopressin are very similar molecules. They, say, they came originally from the same gene, and they are nine amino acids, so nine little building blocks. And they only differ from each other at two building block locations. And they're both involved in bonding. So we'll talk a little bit about this at Stand Up Science. Okay. Um, but vasopressin and, and oxytocin, it turns out that the hormones themselves are not the key to monogamy. 
the key lies in where they can act in the brain. So every hormone acts basically by uh, being a signal that locks into a receptor. And once it activates that receptor, it changes the cell. And so with these two hormones, the hormones are basically the same in both species. They're produced in the same part of the brain. They're released all over the brain. But in the monogamous species, they can activate brain regions that they don't have access to, that they can't activate in a non-monogamous species. Hmm. And, and it's that, is it just that one small change that's leading to the difference in the mating behavior? So my favorite experiment that anybody has ever done with these animals was done by one of my colleagues, where she essentially just went in and used a virus to change where in the brain the receptor was located in the non-monogamous species. And when she did that, and then she let them mate, they developed a preference to be with their partner, which for us is this hallmark of whether or not they formed a bond. So it really is as simple as changing the expression of the receptor in one part of the brain, and you get these vast changes in social behavior. Hmm. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective. We've evolved monogamy over and over and over in different lineages, mammalian and avian, etc. So it can't be that hard to evolve it, right? And so suddenly you can explain the evolution by changing or tweaking the expression pattern of one gene. It suddenly doesn't seem like such a crazy idea to be able to evolve monogamy. Hmm. Is there, it seems like there's a, with humans, we have um, quite a toolbox. We have a lot of different strategies that, that we use <laughs> and a lot of, a lot of um, individual differences. And, and is, is there a, uh, sorry, why am I saying progesterone? Progesterone is a totally different <laughs> thing. Um, and uh, is there a vasopressin um, difference in humans? Yeah, so there's this study that was done in Scandinavia where they looked at different versions of the vasopressin receptor gene in humans. So there's variation in all of our genes across different individuals. And what they were trying to do is ask whether or not certain variations of that gene could be tied to differences in social behavior in humans. And so they looked at these Scandinavian twins. There's one version of the gene where if they were coupled up, um, they were twice as likely to be living together but not married to each other. And they were more likely to report what they called a relationship crisis within the previous year. So that would be something like discussing breaking up, something along those lines. And so there is one study in humans that suggests that maybe there is some variation within this receptor in humans that can contribute to sort of individual differences in relationship happiness. Hmm. So is that going to be a pill that's going to be in the market in the future where you can just get uh, like in, instead of because uh, right now it's all just like Viagra and weird uh, different sex uh, like here's how to have more sex and do it better. But maybe in the future we'll have like a pill for here's how to be more in love and you'll have some sort of vasopressin um, supplement slowly anyway. Really? Yeah, so there are clinical trials going on, mostly in Europe, where they're using intranasal oxytocin during couples therapy. Really? The idea is that you are building a connection with someone else, and by giving oxytocin, you're boosting what's going on. You're paying more attention to sort of um, the bonding and the trust that you're building in that situation. So it's facilitating what's already happening. Hmm. It's not like a love potion number nine. It's not going to make anyone fall in love, but it can sort of augment what you're trying to do by creating and accepting an open and trusting, you know, building of a relationship uh, in, in a couples therapy setting. Interesting. So you're already in the relationship. You, you're both committed to trying to make this work. You've been having some issues. You snort a little oxytocin and, uh, and this helps facilitate bonding. 
yeah, that's the idea. Wow. So you're just, it's, it's not huh. doing anything on its own per se. It's just augmenting what's already going on. Oh, that's, that's, uh, hmm. That's really interesting. That's going to be, that's going to really change Valentine's Day presents and stuff and <laughs> later on, I imagine. Yeah. Huh. Well, I mean, I've, uh, I've certainly heard of MDMA being used in couples therapy before. Yeah. And, and MDMA causes this massive release of oxytocin. Oh, so it does really? other things too, right? So it modulates serotonin, another big neurotransmitter in our, in our brains, uh-huh. but it does release all this oxytocin. And so that ah. may be a big part of why we feel this sense of connection. Wow. Okay. I knew about the serotonin release. I didn't. I didn't know. Uh, that's the full disclosure. I have used MDMA in my in my relationship, and it's been very helpful. Well, and that's so, fantastic. I mean, so that's there's, there's other clinical trials with MDMA. So yeah, yeah. Well, it started as a couples therapy drug, but that's interesting to know that it's oxytocin um, that's causing it. All right. So what it. First off, how did you get interested in all this in the first place? So uh, walk us through your history. How did you end up here? So I was an undergraduate and I was thinking, you know, I should go to grad school or something kind of directionless, but a very straight A student and went on. So I started looking around and thinking. I'm, st- I'm, uh, I'm still directionless and not at all a straight A uh, student. So I mean, I was good at reaching the goals that were immediately before me and well articulated, I guess. All right. Great. <laughs> but having a bigger, a bigger picture was kind of lacking from my life. So okay. I was sitting around one day and kind of reading through some sciencey stuff. And I started thinking to myself, wouldn't it be cool if you had one monogamous species and one promiscuous species and you just compared them. And, you know, like all great ideas, I was very much not the first person to think of this. Um, And so then when I was applying to graduate school, I sort of found the person that was doing the coolest research on these two species of voles. Um, And I did my PhD work with him. And then I, uh, so so one of the things about science is um, you build a, a pedigree of training, right? And so I worked on these weird animals that everybody, prairie voles, what are those? You know, I had them in my garden. I tried to get rid of them once, that type of thing. And so then I was like, okay, well, I need to, I need to get my official science stamp of like, it's okay. She can do real science too, not just science on weird species. So I went and did a a postdoc where I worked with uh, mice. I made transgenic mice for a few years. Um, And then transgenic. Yeah. So basically I I tweaked their genes a little bit. Okay. Um, So I made one set of mice where I tweaked their genes and tried to make them monogamous. And I made another set of mice where I tweaked their genes and tried to make them depressed so that we could better understand it. (laughs) Um, Talking about depression does not, it's not nearly as fun as talking about monogamy and voles. It is one of my favorite (laughs) subjects though. I will have to say. It's very interesting, but in terms of cocktail hour fodder, the voles go over much better. Yeah. Um, The, uh, the, the mating stuff. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But you do, you still do. If uh, you do like mood and anxiety yeah, research bit. as yeah, well, yeah, we're sort of wrapping that up. So I have I have a grant that funds that that's ending um, this summer, and then mm. we probably won't try to renew that line of research. Hmm. Um, probably work exclusively in the voles. Oh, I'm sorry I brought it up. <laughs> no, no, I mean so so in the voles, what we do study that's somewhat related is essentially what happens when they lose a partner, right? Ah. And this is something that curiously does not receive much attention, and and that's for like some very strange reasons. So one is grief is totally natural. And, and yes, it is, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that grief is absolutely linked to health. So you hear sometimes broken heart syndrome. So when you lose someone, you're at an increased risk of a heart attack yourself. So there's all these inner, there's this interplay between um, our social world and our health. 
but that hasn't really been a focus of, of scientific study. And part of the reason for that is that we didn't have a good animal model for studying this. And so that's a gap that I'm now trying to fill in my own lab. Basically, you know, what happens to these guys when they lose a partner? How long does it take before they can bond with someone new? And what does that process of adaptation look like in their brains? Hmm. And what are you finding? Um, that for them to, so, so we can give them a new partner four weeks after we take them away from their first partner. And it takes that long for them to consistently choose the second partner over the first partner. So these are these are slightly slightly diabolical if you think about it. We give them wait, one partner. Wait, wait, hold on a second. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Walk we give them their first this. partner. Okay. They bond. Okay. Then we yeah. take that partner away. Yeah. Then, then we wait four weeks. Wait four weeks. You introduce we give a them second. a new partner. Yeah. And then we let them bond with that partner. But then we ask them, who would you prefer to be with, partner one or partner two? So you reintroduce the old, yeah. the long lost. The long this lost. Is this like, is like the castaway experiment, yeah, right? Yeah, this like, is the Tom Hanks Tom situation. Tom Hanks has come back. Come, I'm like, who yeah. do you, yeah, you go with number two. <laughs> but if you look at less than four weeks, then they won't show this like consistent preference for either number one or number two. So it takes. Oh it wait, takes so that four long. weeks and they they're just done with they're done. They're done, done with, with number, number one. one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So if you think it kind of makes sense biologically because it takes them three weeks to have offspring, right? So by the fourth week, you know you're not pregnant, and you know, I mean biologically speaking, you know that you should probably find a new partner if you want to have more offspring. I see. That's huh. my take on it. I don't know what yeah. really happens in their in their little minds. So is this a? Are they? behaving differently when when separated you you mentioned grief and uh, are they are they acting um they act depressed as they, far as we can measure in animals huh. so it's kind of like any other stressful trauma so we will do things like we'll measure stress hormones stress hormones are elevated um i have a colleague who looks at their behavior and they basically will show these hallmarks of what we think are are rodent depression so cortisol Cortisol. Oh, finally got a rodents. hormone correct here. Yeah. Totally <laughs> redeemed myself. <laughs> Corticosterone <laughs> and uh, the corticosterone releasing hormone. Okay. Um, so those are both elevated after you take their partner away. And then they basically will interact a lot more passively with stressors. So they'll, they won't try to escape a stressful situation. And that we think is sort of a hallmark of, of depression and voles. Hmm. Wait, if they try to escape... So if they try to actively escape, that's considered normal behavior. Ah, but if they just kind of passively let this happen to them, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's definitely stressful. Huh. But I think that there's something that was not really recognized for a long time, which is that grief and depression really are different things because grief is about the loss of one particular person or thing. And so that's where I think the sticking point is, right? I don't think we need necessarily another animal model that looks at trauma and depression. But we do need an animal model that can look at what is the adaptive process that lets them basically recover from the loss of one particular individual, because that's the analogy to grief. Hmm. Huh. Well, that is fascinating. And what if we can touch quickly on this, because I'm actually interested. You said people at cocktail parties aren't interested in the, <laughs> the depression side of things. And I don't know how long you actually did this work but seven I'm, years oh seven years actually so nine if me. we include the last two yeah so it's been a oh, little while great yeah. well i want tell me about depression it's one of my favorite subjects so, so what what did you what kind of experiments were you doing in in rats so i was really interested in sort of we know that all of all of these complex mental health disorders have a pretty big genetic component and yet despite that we don't really know what genes are involved 
Um, and there's this disconnect where we're good at like finding genes that might be involved, but then actually figuring out what those genes do or how the variants of those genes change your brain is really not well understood. So what I was working on was largely trying to understand how one particular receptor, a serotonergic receptor, um, could contribute to different individual differences in anxiety and depression using a mouse model. Hmm. So one of the nice things about mice is that we have these amazing tools. So one of the things I did is I went in and I just tweaked this one receptor. I just basically turned it down like a rheostat to like half its normal level in one part of the brain, basically during the childhood of a mouse. Then I turned it back up to normal levels. And all the way in adulthood, these mice were more anxious. So just tweaking that gene in one brain region a little bit is enough that even as adults, they're more anxious. Oh, man. So now that you start thinking about it, like little teeny tweaks in gene expression can have these profound influences. Through the rest of the life. Even later in life in terms of predisposing you to be more likely to develop an anxiety disorder or depression. And so the the cool thing about mice is that we can go in and we can do that. We can tweak a gene here, turn it on, turn it off. Yeah. Or actually act more like a rheostat, just turn it down a little bit. Hmm. Well, that is, it's always, um, it it is always a little depressing in and of itself to hear, to hear about things that happen in say like the prenatal environment or during childhood that can affect someone negatively for the rest of their lives. Was this something that was being studied for use in pharmaceutical interventions or what was was there any was there any like solution figured out from from any of these studies so one of the ideas i like is called the orchid dandelion hypothesis which is if you think about instead of instead of thinking about this in terms of like going in and tweaking gene expression in one brain region if you think about there are some variants of this gene that maybe just have slightly lower levels in some people than in other people The orchid dandelion hypothesis says that if you have the more sensitive genotype, that maybe what's happening is that in really great environments, you become a genius, you become Einstein, you become amazing. Um, But you're also more sensitive to a poor environment. So if you are exposed to trauma, that's going to have a bigger effect on your long-term likelihood of, of developing depression. Whereas if you have the dandelion genotype, you're more or less impervious no matter if it's a good environment, a mediocre environment, or a bad environment. And so, wow, so that it, is... it explains why we would have these risk huh. alleles in the population, that sometimes if you put people in the right environment, right. that genetic sensitivity gives you these amazing creative geniuses. Wow, you you just blew my mind. That is fantastic. That is, I've never heard of that before. Orchid dandelion hypothesis. Um, how long has that been around? I'm surprised I've never heard of it before. Since the 90s. Huh. Huh. Well, now you have me thinking. Um, hmm. And I don't think any one hypothesis like this is going to explain all of what genetic variation does in terms of shaping us as individuals. But I think it's interesting to think about how all these things fit together and why we would even have some of these genetic variants from an evolutionary perspective. Hmm. So... In these rats where you turned these levels back up and then they showed, did you also do any experiments with any um, treatment for their um, mood disorders then that had been created? (laughs) Little mouse mood disorders. (laughs) Um, No, not in that study. Um, What I did after that was I actually went in and I, um, I took a genetic variant from humans that we think contributes to depression. So all the studies that are like, we think these genes are involved. 
I took that and I put it into mice to basically ask, okay, if we take this human gene and we take the two different versions of it and we put it into a mouse and we get rid of the mouse copy, what does that do? Like, how does it, how does it express differently for the two different versions? What does that do to the mouse behavior? Hmm. Um, and so I was taking a slightly different approach because, you know, we, I don't think that we would have had any sort of um, tricks with the mice that we don't already have for humans, right? Give them SSRIs, give them anti-anxiety medications, et cetera. Like Hmm. we're not going to go in and tweak gene expression in humans using viruses anytime soon. Right. Not for, not for depression. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, I was more interested in trying to understand why are some people more sensitive than others to developing mental illness? And huh. how could we understand that by changing, by, by taking a human gene and putting it into a mouse brain, basically? Huh. Well, that is, my goodness, I'm going to be thinking about that orchid and dandelion hypothesis for, is that what it's called? Um, yeah, for, like it's kind of like an orchid will be absolutely gorgeous and stunning in the right environment, but right. you know you gotta like feed it kelp water and stuff that <laughs> takes a lot of care to make it a beauty. Oh. Whereas a dandelion will more or less survive no matter what, right? Oh, that is okay. Fascinating. What kind of experiment? You just gave me a, a little tour uh, downstairs. What kind of experiments are you currently running? Okay, so and and by the way, don't don't like. Don't save stuff because you're presenting it at stand-up oh, science. Oh no, or it's anything. more just that I don't, you probably don't want me to talk for the next like four hours about my experiments because I definitely can. Well, so I was trying to think about <laughs> what what might you want to hear about the most. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, usually I would say in this predicament, I would I would say that to follow your heart and go with the things that you are the most interested in. Usually the the things that you're the most excited about talking about, that's going to be conveyed um, in the podcast that you are excited talking about it. And therefore the listener will then be <laughs> excited talking about it as well. So I would say follow your instincts that way. What are you the most interested in? So right now, one of the things we're trying to figure out is what maintains bonds over time. So we kind of think about this from a human perspective of when you're falling in love, that's pretty different from staying in love. So what are the things that keep you with your partner? And one of them is when you're away from them for long enough, you have a desire to reunite with them. And so we kind of, we call this partner-directed motivation. Um, And this is something that we can measure in prairie voles because we can basically teach them to press a lever. And if they press that lever, they get rewarded by being able to go hang out with their partner. Um, And so we have this task where we basically ask them to press a lever and then we change the rules a little bit. So we say, okay, now you have to press twice to get access. Now three times, four times. And we keep going till they give up. And when they give up, that gives us a quantitative metric of how hard they were willing to work to get access to their partner. Mm. Now, we have this hypothesis that there's this particular subset of cells within the brain that encodes this particular motivation. And so one of the coolest things that I think that we're working on right now is that we can actually visualize those cells as the animals performing this task. You got little helmets on them. Yeah, we have little helmets. We actually have lenses implanted directly into their brains, and then we hook up a tiny microscope to their head. And then we've modified the neurons in a way where when they're active, they fluoresce. So you can see, like, you can literally see cells firing in the brain using this technique. And so we can say, okay, which of the cells are firing when these guys are pressing a lever to get back to their partner? Hmm. Which, so that's a correlation, right? You basically are saying, oh, look, these cells are active when they're pressing a lever to get back to their partner. So the key experiment here, which I think is really cool, is that we're working with a group at the medical center here at Anschutz. 
And they have developed a technology that's going to allow us to go in and stimulate just those cells. So you can imagine an experiment where basically we let the animals just completely exhaust themselves pressing this lever. They want to get back to their partner and they just, they've given up because the rules are too many lever presses and they just don't have it in them. But if we zap those cells, do we suddenly reinvigorate their desire to go lever press and get back to their partner? Hmm. Because then you've actually manipulated something and you've shown that just activating this small subset of cells is sufficient for these guys to basically try, re, retry reuniting with their partner. Hmm. So, so that's one of the things that we're funded to do. I don't know if it's going to work, um, but I think it's a pretty interesting hypothesis that you have this subset of cells in your brain that's encoding this desire to reunite with your partner. Huh. So uh, individual differences in that might also predict people like uh, jumping through more hoops to stay with their their current partner. Yeah, and also attachment disorders, right? So you, you think about um, over-attachment with kids, right? So all kids go through this stage of stranger danger where they're like permanently latched onto their parent's leg. I remember preschool, first day of preschool, <laughs> horrifying situation. Yeah. It was one of my first memories in life, being ripped away from my mother. It was traumatic. Yeah, so that's normal. But then for a subset of people, they don't actually overcome that stranger danger and they have this sort of maladaptive attachment. Mm -hmm. And you do actually see this in couples in adulthood too, where people form these attachment disorders where they, they literally can't be away from their spouse for a certain amount, of, like more than a couple hours, et cetera. Hmm. And it, it's almost as prevalent in adulthood as it is in, amongst children. And so you can imagine that those disorders, the biological basis of it, it's these cells just kind of going haywire. Hmm. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering uh, where I stand. I, I travel all the time. So I uh, it's it's um, not uncommon for me to go for like a month without seeing my my but significant presumably other. Presumably you text, talk on the phone. That's true. Right. So I think it's yeah, more complicated for humans. It's not just like zero contact on a, you know, island in the middle of the Pacific. Right. Right. Huh. Well, that is interesting. This is you are blowing my mind. Well, let's 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 get another one. Uh, what's another study that you're doing? Um, so another study that we're working on that's also so we do a lot of imaging, like watching what's happening in brains in real time. Mm -hmm. um, and so another one that we're working on is using the same the same technology, but basically asking, okay, if we if we take a prairie vole and we watch them interact with their partner. What does their brain do? And if we take a meadow vole and we have them interact with a meadow vole that they've previously mated with, what's going on in their brain? So this is getting at that question of how do their brains differ? So we let them mate. And then the hypothesis is that there's this subset of cells in the prairie vole that's encoding the bond that's absent in the meadow vole. So the prairie voles are the monogamous species. And so if you form this memory represented in a subset of cells, you should see that because those same subset of cells should be reactivated every single time they interact with their partner. And the failure to form that memory and the failure to form that ensemble of neurons that are active in response to a mating partner might explain why a meadow vole doesn't really have a problem walking away from their partner. Mm. There's, there's quite literally no physical substrate of the bond within the brain for those guys. Hmm. So, but there's nothing in the meadow vole that's like, like actively repulsing uh, like like after they've done the deed going like oh gross and like, and like the the walk of shame kind of situation <laughs> afterwards is there anything like that happening or is it just simply the absence of an inclination to 
bond? So we don't think it's aversive. So I have a colleague who works on this at Smith. Um, and so her hypothesis is that for prairie voles to be with their mate, it's rewarding. And for meadow voles, they just kind of tolerate them. Okay. And so you can actually measure this by teaching the animals to associate some location with their partner. And then you say, would you rather be in the location that you learned to hang out with in your, with your partner or in this other location where you never hung out with your partner? And so if you're a prairie vole, they prefer to hang out in the place that their partner used to be. Um, so this is kind of how you might have fond memories of some place that, you know, you fell in love or you got engaged or, you know, like some, some emotionally salient memory that gets tied to the location. Huh. Um, yeah. Whereas in meadow voles, if it was aversive, they would avoid the place that was previously associated with their mating partner, but they just don't seem to care. So they just don't show an aversion or a preference for that location. Okay. Hmm. Well, so that kind of answers that then. They just don't care. I think that's huh. really what it comes down to. <laughs> Interesting. Um, hmm. Now, there's one other flavor out there in the rodent world. It's called the Coolidge effect. Um, oh, I know the Coolidge. Give me a, Yeah, wait a second. Why am I having... Uh, the Coolidge effect is, is a famous one. Yes. I know. I'm definitely supposed to know it. Um. Oh, the President Coolidge. Yep. Taking the tour of the, the farm. farm. I'm so yes. impressed right now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then the. Uh, oh boy. Let's see if I can remember yeah, the little anecdote. So, um, the Mrs. Coolidge is going. Uh, she's getting the tour of the farm, and there's a rooster uh, getting it on with a with a hen, and uh, and and she's. She she says, "How often do they do that?" And and the guy says, "Every couple hours or something like that." Some some sort of highly frequent example. And she says, "You you should tell that show this to Mister Coolidge." And then Mister Coolidge goes on a separate tour, and he is pointed out the same thing. Says Mrs. Coolidge was wanted me to show you that this rooster mates. Every few hours or something like that, and and President Coolidge says, "Yeah, but is it the same hen every time?" And it is not the same hen every time. Is that basically? Yeah. Did I? And he said, "Make sure you tell Mrs. Coolidge." <laughs> oh, make her make sure <laughs> I feel you so said. so bad for the farmer in that story. <laughs> like I wonder. I wonder if that actually happened. Uh, I don't or know, not. but, but this it's is what it's it such a Wikipedia. wonderful yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, so in male hamsters, if they've mated with one female, they'll spend more time with the female they haven't mated with, and so that's the Coolidge effect. Okay. Um, but yeah, I feel like you've you've seen my talks or something. So yeah. That one a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the Coolidge thing. Like I said, it's 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 uh, you're you're hard pressed to read a book about evolutionary biology or psychology without hearing about prairie bowls, without hearing about the Coolidge effect. It pops up from yeah, time to time. Yeah, it absolutely does. And uh, yeah, and this is also some of my favorite things to talk about. So I am having a blast right now. Um, so, uh, well, let's just keep on going. What, what else, uh, what else, uh, what other interesting things you got cooking up down there? So we're figuring out ways that we can tweak genes in prairie bull brains. So we're basically developing systems that let us go in and target any gene or set of genes and turn them on or turn them off within a brain. So you could imagine that we could use this to try to reverse engineer monogamy in meadow voles. We can basically say, what genes do we have that are turned on in prairie voles that are not turned on in meadow voles? And if we go and we turn those genes on in the meadow voles, do they suddenly fall in love with their partner? Hmm. 
So what are, I'm sorry, can you, can you walk me through that one more time? Yeah. So uh, presumably there's in species that can form a monogamous bond. There's something that predisposes them to be able to do this. Okay. And we do think that that's genetic. And so the one example we already talked about was the vasopressin receptor, mm-hmm. that you have a difference in where that's located in the brain. And suddenly you have these animals that can sort of fall in love for lack of a better scientific term. Um, <coughs> So there have to be differences at the genetic level, what's being expressed in the brains of one species compared to the other that makes it possible for one of them to fall in love and makes it impossible for the other one. And so we're essentially just doing another version of that vasopressin receptor. And what are you finding? Um, I'll let you know. We don't know yet. We're still we're basically still just developing these systems to go in and tweak gene expression in the brains of these guys. So how much... How much individual differences are there? You you mentioned the study where you hit the lever a bunch of times, and this is, it's like reminiscent of that. What what's that weird song? Uh, like I, I would walk five thousand. Is it five thousand? Is it ten thousand miles? I forget how many thousands of miles. I just remember. Ba-da-bum, ba-da-bum. That's 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 pretty much all I I can. Re- I think so they there's eventually that guy. Get to 10, miles yeah, that song, yeah. I, so that's a yeah, that's so a pretty like extreme that. um version out there. And and then there's there's other certainly within. Uh, within humans, there's other people out there not willing to walk at all. Right. Uh, is there, <laughs> is there uh, any, uh, with, within these species, is there any individual variation? So there is, and this is, this is probably my second favorite story about prairie voles. Um, so I have a colleague who studies prairie voles in the wild. So what he does is he basically takes his voles out of the lab and he puts them in these big, huge enclosures where they basically live like they would in the wild in the prairie. And he puts little radio chips in Uh, just like you would chip your cat and your dog. And then he goes, and he basically, every day, they just go out with their radio antenna and they go, where are the voles? Where are the voles? And they create these little maps and they keep finding that there's a subset of males where the male and one female are always in the same general place in their own little territory that presumably has their burrow. And then he has males that just seem to roam around a lot. And then he looked at basic paternity tests in these guys and the the males that stick with one female, they basically have babies with that female. And the ones that wander around, they wind up doing a lot of cheating with a lot of females and having a lot of babies. And so the question is, if we basically have these two different morphs amongst prairie voles, really faithful males and not particularly faithful males, why do both of these exist? And so we think it has something to do with population densities. So... One of the things about rodents in the wild is that their populations tend to go through these really drastic sort of boom and bust cycles. So you'll have you'll have a whole bunch of rodents and then the predators will catch up, but then the predators will eat the rodents and the rodent population will crash. And so over time, it's really common that you have sort of this feast or famine, literally if you're a fox, um, of rodent populations. And so... The hypothesis is that when rodent populations are low, you're better off being a faithful male, both because you can more effectively chase off other suitors, but also because there are going to be fewer females for you to potentially pair with. Mm -hmm. But at high population densities, it's kind of like living in the city, just kidding, (laughs) that it's a little bit harder to know who your, you know, significant other might be meeting on the street every now and then. Yeah. 
Well, take that city, folks. Take you're, that not city as, folks. <laughs> you're not <laughs> as trustworthy. Um, <laughs> I do think I, I do think that there's some, some studies out there that show that there's like higher rates of infidelity in. in, in it, oh, is that right? In, I, I'm, no, I'm making that up. I have no idea. <laughs> well, I mean. <laughs> I could, I could sort of believe it. All I, I know I is I was in my 30s living in New York City. I was yeah. married, but then everyone that I knew was just like, the dating scene here is terrible. Yeah. The men have too many options. <laughs> well, now we're in Boulder, and it's like, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's kind of a smaller population It is here. a much it's... smaller population here, yeah. <laughs> so... This isn't this isn't like a group selection thing in any way. This this is this is an individual. This is like kind of a if then kind of a program in the mind where where a different bull is is equipped with a, a, a uh, these these two possibilities is taking feedback within the environment and then it's turning on some preference. Well, so there's actually a genetic variant in the voles that predicts pretty well whether or not they settle down and are faithful or whether they basically become these wanderers that just look for extra pair copulations. Oh, and so just one of them is more successful in one of the two environments? Right, right. Okay, And since the environment's constantly changing, one is favored for a while and then it flip-flops and the other one is favored for a while. And so this is something we would call balancing selection from an evolutionary standpoint. It's basically how you maintain both genetic variants in a population because the population has different selective pressures over time. Hmm. Hmm. Um, is, is there so is there like these tipping points where 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 you have most males using one strategy for long enough where it creates this opportunity for this other strategy to take off? Presumably, that's how this all started. Right. Okay. There had to be enough pairs that we're doing better than unpaired individuals in terms of their reproductive success in order to get a species that is monogamous at all. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, <laughs> well, it, what, what, uh, what does this say about, um, about humans in general? Because, I mean, it's what, like you said, what did you say, 3 to 5%? Of mammals, of, of the mammals mammalian species, yeah. Are, yeah. It gets real different when we start looking at birds, which are somewhere around 90%. Okay. Um, but that makes sense because if you are a bird dad, you can contribute a lot more to your offspring's development. You can sit on the egg. You can provide food directly. Whereas if you're a mammalian father, there's sort of a limit to how much help you can provide to ensure offspring are going to survive. And so there's only a few instances in which you actually see the evolution of monogamy occurring in mammals, Mm -hmm. um, in instances where the environment is so harsh that the offspring won't survive unless they have both parents, Mm -hmm. or if your likelihood of finding another mate is so low that as a male, you're better off sticking with one and impregnating her multiple times. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also sort of a disease burden hypothesis. So STDs are a thing. Right. Um, (laughs) Your your risk is much lower if you don't cheat. Right, right, Um, right. Also, I mean, in terms of humans, our kids are this tremendous. Our kids are real weird. Pain in the ass. Yeah, really. it turns incredibly out costly. that uh, for all other species, they kind of uh, either they hop out of the womb and they're ready to go like a lamb, um, or they're born and they're very underdeveloped, but they're ready to go off on their own by the time mom's ready to give birth. Whereas mm. if you look around in human populations, you can wind up with moms with multiple kids under an age at which they would be able to care for themselves independently. And so that means that you're going to need multiple caretakers. And that doesn't mean that it has to be a dad. 
It could be a grandmother, for instance. But we don't really have a viable reproductive system for one woman to take care of as many offspring as she can actually produce. Hmm. Who's having more sex? I'm going to guess the meadow vole is having more sex um, just in terms of frequency. In than, the wild, you mean? Yeah, in the wild. Than, than the which I also want to talk about that the difference between in the lab and and in the wild <laughs> and if you think um, how mu- how much of a difference there is and it, because you showed me some of the meadow voles down there and you said that they were it, you were actually having a hard time getting yeah, them they're they're not real happy to be in the lab as far as we can tell okay they uh, they they just don't want to reproduce very well in the laboratory but the prairie voles they're like whatever the as long as my happy. mates here yeah okay. Yeah, so they they've been reproducing like gangbusters for us. But what about in the wild? So it, in the wild, because so, it doesn't it, it seems intuitive, right? right. That the so, more promiscuous ones would be inclined to just like sex more and have that drive. So this is where they differ from humans in that we will have sex for fun, right? But rodents only have sex to right, reproduce, right. so they only have sex when the female is receptive but you is... have to imagine there's still it still flips on a thing <laughs> where it's like ooh, and that and that and there's this kind of um uh, this feeling of like i i imagine that that it's still like kind of must feel i think that the female is the rate limiting step in this okay. and also that female prairie voles the monogamous species when they're ready to go any male will do really yeah so we've seen the wait, wait, wait. Oh, this is cheat. this is this is in the in the prairie vole. Yeah, they'll cheat when on the each other. When the female's ready. Oh, okay. They'll all right. That makes a little more sense. They'll cheat on each other. The way way I talk I, about it in my classes is that at the end of the day, both parents are coming home to the burrow to take care of the kids together. Right. Okay. I well, I would have assumed that. Huh. I would have thought that. I guess maybe I don't know why I would have thought this, but I would have assumed that the the prairie vole, the females, would have been more selective because you're potentially spending, I mean, you said that they cheat, but you're potentially spending your entire lifespan and having all of your offspring with this, with this one male. Uh, okay, so I was thinking of after they've already formed a bond. So with oh, these okay. guys, they've got really weird reproductive biology where they don't they don't cycle like humans do. Um, the female is an induced ovulator, so she has to be in the presence of a male for 24 to 48 hours before she'll become behaviorally receptive, and she won't even ovulate until after they have sex. Hmm. And so we think that basically that initial 24 to 48 hour period of making the male stick around before she's ready to mate is part of what fosters the bond to form. After that, though, once she's receptive, she'll mate with anybody. But the thing is, she won't form bonds with anybody. She'll only form a bond with that first male. Hmm. And so it's almost like after that, if another male happens to be lucky because he's in the vicinity at the time that she's behaviorally receptive, he might get to mate, but then she's going to chase him away. And she'll go home to her partner. So it's really, we really focus on like the social aspect of that bond. The fact that they want to spend time with and huddle with their partner as opposed to anyone else. But they'll, they'll absolutely cheat. And then do they have like split litters then when they do that? So they can, you can find multiple paternity in litters Hmm. in the wild. Cool. (laughs) That's Uh, the weirdest thing to me. (laughs) uh, Yeah, this is all fascinating. Intermingled sperm. (laughs) Yeah. So weird. So... Is there much in the way of sperm competition in in uh, prairie bulls? 
So I don't know that anybody's looked in prairie voles. The hypothesis would be that you would have less sperm competition in the prairie voles than in the meadow voles, right? And more in the meadow voles. Because even though they will cheat, they definitely are more faithful, right? Um, So there's a very good chance that if you're part of a pair that your partner is the father of the majority of your babies. Okay. Um, Whereas in meadow voles, Presumably, if she's an estrus and she's behaviorally receptive, she will mate with as many males as are available to her, and so you would expect more sperm competition. Do the prairie and the meadow voles have the same kind of general plumbing going on? They do have the same general plumbing. Okay. They have a different number of chromosomes, so that's one of the reasons why we can't make hybrid prairie meadow voles. Oh. So they're not they're not genetically compatible. They can't produce offspring with each other. Oh, okay. They yeah, can't the even have like mules similar. or anything. No, huh. no prairie meadow mules. <laughs> okay. Um, well, this is terrific. I, this is, oh my goodness, so many things that I'm going to be thinking about. Um, all right. So first of all, I have my my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. I'll have you do that before we start um wrapping up here did you have one in mind i did so i'm a big fan of the foundation for biomedical research um it's a group that basically uh, is very much involved in education what are the benefits of doing this type of research why work with animal models you know what have what have animal models contributed to uh curing diseases um and i think that they've they've done a really nice job of uh, of education That's terrific. And this this is a wonderful transition into uh, one of my final questions, which is working with animal models. How, um, how much of a difference is there in the mating behavior, as far as you can tell, between... Uh, animals in captivity. You you mentioned that the you mentioned <laughs> that the prairie voles aren't aren't a big fan, and, but is this is this dramatically changing their sex lives and and even in um, the, oh, oh no, that's the meadow voles I'm talking about. Uh, in the prairie voles, is there is there any different? Uh, the prairie voles, they just love <laughs> they just love their situation. <laughs> They're just happy to have a mate, and it doesn't doesn't change anything. Or are there are there differences um, between I've, captivity and the wild? Yeah, so we never look directly, but one of the things that's different between these guys and mice and rats is that they are essentially wild animals. Um, so the, the voles that we have in the laboratory, the prairie voles and the meadow voles, they were originally caught on the prairie and the meadow, and uh, then, then they were brought into the, the laboratory. And so um, mice and rats have been basically bred for 120 years now in captivity you were telling me domesticated. this i i had never heard this before what was your what was the story of how that originated so a little over a century ago there were basically rich women who sort of they just started breeding mice with weird characteristics so long fur or different colored fur and it was just like kind of a club of like rich ladies who were all breeding mice to try to make fancy mice And so fancy mice are actually where our laboratory mice come from, because in doing all that breeding, they inadvertently inbred some of these mice so much that they became more or less genetically identical to their brothers and sisters. Mm. And so the very first studies, um, the very first immunology studies where they swapped skin grafts across mice and they showed that if it was a mouse of the same type, they could switch they could switch the skin without getting an immune response. But if they went to a different type of fancy mouse, they would get an immune response, basically a rejection of the skin graft. All of that happened just because these bored rich ladies were sitting around being like, I'm going to breed some fancy mice. Mm. That is fascinating. And, and I mean, if you think about it, we do this all the time, right? So purebred dogs, right. cats, 
roosters. I mean, there's that. This is evident. It's just not mice wouldn't have been my species of choice, but. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a rich board lady at the end of the 1800s. I mean, mice are kind of cute. They're kind of cute, but they smell terrible. Oh, is that right? Yeah. They have this huh. ammonia-y smell that's very caustic. Oh, well, that is, that's that's a good thing. That's a good disclaimer to get out there before people rush into their new mice farm. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Well, what are you what are you looking forward to in in some future research? What would you like to do? You got like a five-year plan of, of things? Mm, I definitely have a five-year plan. That's what all our grants are for. But my like life plan is figuring out how we can engineer monogamy. So we've kind of done this in metavols, right? But let's take something more distantly related like a mouse. How can you engineer monogamy into a mouse? Something mm. that is not at all predisposed to this. Hmm. And so I, I think and we theoretically could do, it, could do this in anything. You could do it in like an elephant seal or something. Right. Like, That'd be a lot harder because all these techniques require you to like change the genome or mess with neuronal activity, hmm. um, which is much more accessible, say, in a mouse than in a, a seal. But right. yeah, I think hmm. if we can figure out what sort of the general principles are that enable a species to be monogamous, then we can reverse engineer it. And that would be like the ultimate proof of how you make a monogamous being. Hmm. Do I hate to ask? I hate to end on a question that you may not have a answer for. <laughs> I don't have an answer it to just, most of your questions. So it's all <laughs> it just popped into my head. <laughs> I'm curious. Um, it, anyway, whatever. I'm just gonna ask it. Um, the oxytocin, the nasal spray. Um, do you know? Has there been any? Um, any side effects to that treatment uh, so far uh, or has has there just been nothing but happy relationships <laughs> ever since you just go in there you shoot some oxytocin you do a little couples therapy and terrific you're you're off and running or is there is it because i asked because say mdma right. uh this is uh sure it's, it's terrific that first time around and that but this isn't something you can just do every day your serotonin depletes and, and everything else is there uh is there some some cost involved of adding serotonin or or even adding uh does like vasopressin change it does that have a cost involved when you're tweaking um the vasopressin receptors in these in in like the metal bowls and making them monogamous is there some other cost that happens Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, with respect to MDMA, you're using this weird drug that's going to cause the whole system to just be like, dump it all, dump it all. Mm-hmm. When you're using intranasal oxytocin, that's not the case. You're not stimulating release, we don't think. It's just that it's basically getting into the brain and acting on existing receptors. So you okay. don't have the same sort of dumpage going on. Right, um, right. MDMA is so using what's already in yeah. there. So yeah. the oxytocin nasal spray you're is You're just adding, adding more to the system. Okay. Yeah. Now, there's a few things. So one thing is both vasopressin and and oxytocin can stimulate um, your blood vessels to constrict. So they're involved in regulating blood pressure. So if you got a high enough dose, then in theory, it could have an effect on your blood pressure. That doesn't seem to be a big problem at to date. The biggest problem is actually that oxytocin is not this completely positive pro-social hormone. It seems to be very much involved in boosting the signal of the existing social situation that you're in. So if you are in an effective couples therapy where you're boosting this sense of trust and bonding, Mm -hmm. that's fabulous. 
But if you have a therapist who's not good at their job or you find yourself in some other socially traumatizing situation, it can boost the effects of that trauma. Hmm. And so that's sort of where the, the risk lies. And, and pe- people figured this out because they started giving intranasal oxytocin and seeing some really weird effects where it could sometimes increase anxiety. Well, if you're somebody who's already socially anxious and you're put into a weird laboratory setting and given oxytocin, suddenly now it's just boosting all of your social anxiety that was already there. Well, I'm glad I asked. Say, say that you say you had like one foot out the door. You were like... Uh, gearing up to break up anyway then you decide to to squirt a little oxytocin just to give it one last shot so that might potentially have the reverse effect it might make you more inclined to break up expressed in that so context is everything context is everything right okay yeah um well very cool is there is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience before before we wrap up anyway putting a bow on on all all this any any closing <laughs> closing message or takeaway that you want people to leave with you know take this all with a grain of salt because in the wild prairie voles live for 90 days so when we're talking about commitment we're talking a different level of commitment than for humans right right well th- boy that sure makes the the four weeks i know right that's especially that's the first eternity. half of that is just they aren't even ready to reproduce Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh that's very interesting. Thank you so much for finding the time Absolutely. to sit down and tell us all about your research. This is just terrific stuff. I had such a great time talking with you. And so thank you Zoe Donaldson and thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people and we'll talk with you more next week. Next week on the Here We Are podcast in Denver, talking with Anna Warner about the human musculoskeletal system using biomechanical techniques to assess how variation in physical structure affects locomotor performance. Guys, I forgot to say when I was talking about my relationship with um, with uh, inspiration, I was thinking about how to how to kind of cultivate. I, I'm always rather than just like getting that big windfall of inspiration and, and counting on that and then milking it for every every bit of its worth uh, how do i and this is i think this is just something that comes along with age and uh you know you you're able to regulate your emotional states a little more um how how do you get that inspiration on on a drip like rather rather than getting all of it at once and then crashing how do you get and then if you do that if you're just getting like little bits of inspiration throughout the day and that keeps you moving that keeps you going does that still lead to the huge big monster ideas that that like just change the way that you see everything i think that it might still why not and so you know just why that's why i've been thinking about as i'm keeping the idea machine running i'm i got all these pieces in place so i'm i'm driving around by myself i'm just spending so much time by myself um i love it uh it's one of the reasons why i think i identify with aesop so much we're relatively the same age he's a, a few years older than me and he's also raised catholic and didn't like his catholic upbringing that much and also had um uh he he just likes 
he's prone to isolation, he's prone to depression, and so there's just so many things that he touches on that are just uh, really resonate with me on a, on a super deep level. But here's what I've been doing for inspiration lately, because uh, I've been feeling so good lately, I'm like, am I manic right now? Like, uh, no, or it wouldn't be lasting this long. And it's hasn't come along with any like real grandiosity, more just like a uh, healthy optimism and some big ideas here and there, but not not out of control. And it's been nice. So what I've been doing a lot is I've been doing the great courses, greatcourses.com/slash. Here we are to get first month for free. That's been helping a bunch. And then I listen to my audiobooks, Libro.fm, uh, going in and checking out different audiobooks there. And then I'm like listening to music in between that. And, and then also spending some time. This is all just like when I'm in my car, also spending some time in, in silence, I find really helpful. I like moving. Uh, I'm just happier when I'm moving more. I've just been moving so much more. I've always liked driving because it's it's just the movement. It just feels like I'm I'm going somewhere. I'm accomplishing something. You know, if it's if it's if I'm going from city A to city B, then in that moment I'm at least doing exactly what I should be doing by driving there might be a million other things that i have to do but at least in that moment my my uh my path is aligned perfectly with (laughs) with what i with what i should be doing rather than um i stop and i have a million other things and i'm not sure which direction to invest my energy um so yeah driving has been inspiring for me lately and I've just been writing a lot more of these thoughts and ideas down, which I don't know if it's lack of confidence or just falling out of interest with stand-up or what, but I've just been, I've been writing a lot more lately, and that's having me just understanding things a lot more clearly, and stand-up science has been going pretty well. It's been four shows in the summer so far summer's the hard time so that was the big test so four shows in the summer so far and all four have sold out so if that keeps up that is such a relief in in my life i i mean the the way the circumstances and costs are such that it doesn't mean like i i'm just like crushing life in all of my financial uh issues and debts that I amassed through my years of alcoholism magically are covered and and go away. It's still going to be a grind, but I could have been losing money on these shows. Any one of these shows I could lose money on. And so it's been real encouraging to have them um, doing well and people coming out. So thank you guys for helping spread the the word in that regard. Um, It'd be awesome if, if, uh, if you were inspired to check out Libro.fm or the Great Courses thing, because it's the kind of stuff that I'm going to be talking about quite a bit 
Um, it's stuff that inspires me. So you'll be right along with me. And I think that you'll benefit from it while benefiting me and them as well. I think it's just, uh, you know, not all, all, not all these interactions in life are zero sum games. And these are partnerships that I'm really proud to have and, and, uh, and products that I enjoy myself and absolutely believe in and think everyone would benefit from educating themselves a little more and, and spending more time um, doing that kind of stuff. Who knows? Maybe, you know, not everyone has time for all of that either. Not to lay a guilt trip on anybody. But I, I do think that uh, uh, that it's incredibly beneficial to uh, get more info like this in your life. So thanks for being interested in this podcast. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Thank you to the band Rebreather for the wonderful outro music.
Scarpins Audio, a podcast, <clears throat> a podcast network.